Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Naked and Inside Out. It's Janine and Sin here. Again, we're a podcast highlighting members of the LGBT community while learning about their personal journeys, risks, career paths, and coming out experiences. And today we're thrilled and honored to have Debbie Millman. Yay! Yay! <laughs> we're actually in her apartment today, so we're on site yet again. We're really excited. I know Debbie through um, SVA, where I went to graduate school. A little bit about her, but she can go more into it, of course. She's been in the design business for 30 years. She's the president of the design division of Sterling Brands. She's also the chair of the Masters in Branding program at School of Visual Arts, and she hosts a design podcast, which you all probably have heard of, called Design Matters. And she's also the author of many, many books. Anything else that you want to add in that I may have missed? <laughs> um, that sounds great. Well, maybe, did you mention SVA? Yes, oh, SVA. Okay. okay. I'm clearly um, not paying attention. <laughs> <laughs> and I've already made a mistake. No worries. So I guess to start off, Design Matters had its... 10-year anniversary this past year, so yes. congratulations on that. Yeah, thank you. Um, thank you. And also, it was mentioned uh, recently in the iTunes Best of 2015, which is also a, a really, miracle. It was it's a miracle. <laughs> <laughs> it's a miracle. Well, I was going to say an amazing accomplishment. Thank you. Um, I still don't know how that happened. I, I saw it on Twitter, and a friend of mine who has a podcast called The When You Feed, Eric Zimmer, he tweeted to me, and my first thought was, that's just a cruel joke, Eric. <laughs> That's just mean. And then I started to see the other tweets sort of piling in, and I thought, no, no. You're like, this That's is real. Yeah. And, it, and it, it came at a time where I'd actually literally been walking around, talking to myself, saying, I really need something good to happen to me. I really, really need something good to happen to me. I need something good to happen to me. And then this amazingly good thing happened to me. You put it in the universe. <laughs> so, so wait, you don't get any uh, information from Apple that you're no, going to be featured? No, That's wild. none. I found out through Eric Zimmer from The One You Feed, which is a great podcast, a really great podcast. Put that on and, and that's how I found out. That's amazing. Yeah. And then I, I emailed the person I know at iTunes, but... And yeah. And all he wrote back was thank you, and I think with a smiley face or something. <laughs> <laughs> or you're welcome. And yeah, right. Face. <laughs> so, I guess with that, did you ever think that the podcast would have the longevity and the impact that it does? Especially now with the popularity of podcasts. <laughs> I know. It's kind of amazing. Um, I started doing my show before there were podcasts. So, when I started the show, it was actually on a radio network called Voice America, they cold called me to do the show. Wow. And initially, I thought they were asking me to be a host that they would pay. And I very quickly found out that I had to pay them in order to get the airtime and for them to produce the show. You're kidding. I'm not. Oh and at God. the time, I was going through a particularly interesting time in my life where I realized that I had all but given up any of my creative, every creative endeavor that I had aside from branding and the work that I was doing while it was giving me some enormous sense of being successful financially and commercially, I didn't feel that it was feeding my soul. I didn't feel that I was really fulfilling any bigger, better purpose and it was a really hard time because I suddenly recognized that I hadn't done anything purely creative at that point for about 10 years, wow. all in the name of having this career, in quotes. 
And so when they offered me the opportunity to do this show, I thought it could be a really wonderful creative endeavor. I had nothing to lose except the money that I would invest in doing this, but it was money I was essentially investing in myself. Yeah. I had no idea what I was doing. I'd had a little bit of experience working on the working at the radio station where I went to college, but was by no means even a DJ. <laughs> <laughs> And so I took a chance and interviewed. The first interview was with a man named John Fulbrook, who is now one of the head creative at the Martin Agency, but was then the creative director at Simon & Schuster. And I asked him to be my first interview for a number of criteria. The first, I really trust him. The second, he's incredibly verbose. And third, I knew he'd have my back if I choked and he'd pick up and sort of take the ball and run with it if I fumbled. So he did all of the above. (laughs) But it was still a dreadful, dreadful podcast, mostly because the sound quality was really terrible and I had absolutely no idea what the hell I was doing. Um, But no, it's hard for me to believe that it's been 10 years. It's not hard to believe that I've been doing it for 10 years because I tend to be what Michael Surtees once referred to as a finisher. I, it's very hard for me to walk away from things, and that's sometimes very bad. Uh, I'm very much a stick-to-it person. I need to make this the best it could possibly be, and there's times where it's futile to do something like that. Um, so it doesn't surprise me. I've, I Before moving to the place we're currently sitting in at this moment, I lived in my previous home for 21 years. I've worked at Sterling for over 20 years. I've been teaching for over 10. So when I do something, I commit to it. Yeah. <laughs> So what was it like reaching out to these designers or people? Were you afraid that, you know, they weren't going to get back to you? Did you think you had a strong enough community where people would be interested in being on your show and talking about design on the podcast? Like, did you have any fears going into it from that perspective? Um, no, surprisingly, because I tend to be fearful of almost everything I haven't done before. I, at that point in my life, I was part of the New York chapter of AIGA. I was on the board. And so I had recently met some remarkable people I thought I could ask, and, and many of them were on the podcast in those early days. Alan Dye, who's now the creative director at Apple, was then the creative director at Kate Spade. He was on the show. Emily Oberman, who was the previous president, she was on the show. So I went through first the people that I knew and admired and then I broadened out to people that I knew peripherally or knew of and had a connection to Mm -hmm. and admired and then moved to people I didn't know but admired and now I'm up for anything if people have suggestions I'm always up for learning about new remarkable people that I've never heard of and Mm -hmm. learning about who they are and understanding their trajectory and their work but the show is has really changed I mean it's moved from being a show primarily about design and designers and branding Mm -hmm. to a show about how people construct a creative life and how they design that the intent in creating this life for themselves. So while I think it's still appropriate to call it Design Matters, mostly because I am a brand consultant and do understand the value of equity, um, in, in some ways it's it's gone way beyond that and is now really about how to live a creative life or how people live their creative lives. What would you say is interviewing these people is a commonality that you find amongst the interviews that these people are bringing into their creative lives? Is there a common theme? Maybe there's not. I think there's a common theme that 
is probably already fairly well known, and that is that even the most successful, or maybe especially the most successful people in the world still wake up almost every day with self-doubt. Can I do it again? Will I do it again? Will I do it as good? Can I do it better? I, I found even in doing the interviews for my first book, how to think like a great graphic designer. And I've said this before, but I think it bears saying again, the only two people that didn't have that when I interviewed them was Milton Glaser and Massimo Vignelli. Um, the original. Yeah. yeah. And, and Massimo yeah. passed away yeah. just in the yeah. last couple of years. Milton is in well into his 80s at this point. And I think that the common denominator between, common denominator between them is that they are so far along, so advanced yeah. in their careers. Mm-hmm. By 80, one would hope you wake up and say, I'll take it out let alone it being successful or not, who cares? Something to aspire to. Exactly, yeah. exactly. But everybody else, I mean, the greats of the greats, you know, yeah. Sagmeister and Paula and Chip, I mean, they all had, and it was remarkable to me and comforting as well to hear mm-hmm. that they still grapple with their great, great talent and don't, it doesn't rest on their, they don't rest on their own laurels. They don't think that they're as great as they are. They're not mm-hmm. walking around with this profound sense of self-esteem and worth. They do what they do and they hope it turns out well every day. Yeah. I mean, I think definitely, you know, as a creative to have that humility and to be your own best or worst critic, however <laughs> you want to look at it, is something that you need, I think, to continually grow as a designer or what, like whatever you're doing that you need that. So yeah. it's, I guess, having that balance and to keep the motivation. Well, they do it anyway. You see, I think where a lot of people stop is in that fear, in that doubt. Mm-hmm. Because they have the doubt, they're afraid to do it. The common denominator with the designers that I've interviewed is they have the doubt, but they do it anyway. So this gets back to something I also love to talk about, which is confidence and courage. Mm-hmm. A lot of people think that what you need to do it anyway is confidence. Mm-hmm. No. What you need is courage. And that comes from Danny Shapiro, who I interviewed. And this was actually something that she said after the interview was over, and I wish that I'd captured it on tape, mm-hmm. um, where we were talking about what you need to succeed and we were talking about the role of confidence and she said that she thought confidence was highly overrated and that most overly confident people are kind of jerky yeah we don't really love being around them yeah (laughs) often compensating for something else yeah lack of good parenting for first (laughs) but that what you really need is courage Mm -hmm. because what you need is that ability to do to step into that self-doubt and do it anyway and show up anyway what kind of advice could you give for somebody that's looking like for more courage? Like how to find that courage you're saying? You have to make it. You don't find it. It's not like under a rock. Mm -hmm. You have to make it. You make it by doing it and seeing that it doesn't kill you. Mm -hmm. And and it won't. Yeah. I mean, unless it involves jumping out of planes. 99% of the situations. So you have to make it and you make it by doing it and then doing it again and doing it again. And once you start to build up a pattern of being able to do it, forget whether or not it's successful, just the ability to successfully complete the endeavor, mm-hmm. forget whether or not it's recognized. Mm-hmm. I mean, recognition and success are also very different things. So if you are able to complete the task, the next time you try it, it becomes it easier. easier. Yeah. Maybe marginally, but 
if you do it enough times, it does. You see the difference. What is recognition compared to success for you? I think success is the successful completion of something that you want to do. You have succeeded at completing this task. You could be successful at completing the task of laundry. You can be successful at completing the task of a visual essay. You can be successful at completing the task of writing a book, creating a podcast, making something. And I'm happiest when I'm making things. I could be making a podcast. I could be making a lesson plan. I could be making a book, a a piece of art, whatever it is. If I'm making it, I'm happy. That, to me, is success. If somebody recognizes it as valuable, that's even better because I feel somehow acknowledged at doing this thing. It makes me feel good, but that's very egoic. You know, that's from mm-hmm. an e- from an ego point of view. I One should be able to feel successful in the completed task or mm-hmm. in the act of the task, which mm-hmm. is really the most joy for me. Once you're done, I remember reading 100 Years of Solitude. The first time I read that book, I never wanted it to end because I loved reading it so much that I couldn't imagine what my life would be like when I finished it. And isn't that like, that's art right there. Mm -hmm. That's art. I didn't want the book to end. I didn't want the task to be complete. Successful reading of the book. Uh, Yeah. I did. did. You just have to read it again then. Um, So recognition, I think, comes from wanting to be acknowledged and having done something well Success comes from being able to do what you want to do and be in the act of doing it and be able to do it again. So then speaking about success, <laughs> like flipping it and talking about failure, I've listened to like some of the, your podcasts, touch base on this or other interviews you have been on. And I think it's interesting, like your take on failure. And I mean, you have your hands in a lot of projects and you're doing so many things. In most of them, if not all of them, I feel like you have been successful at. Is there a time in any of these, have you experienced a sense of failure, even though it wasn't necessarily an exact failure? And how do you view that as a whole? I've radically, radically, radically changed my views on failure lately. And I've been talking to a lot of people about this. I actually think that we're in a, in a cultural moment in the zeitgeist of failure appreciation. Everybody's failing fast and failing forward and <laughs> failing furiously. And there's all these failures that people yeah. are now being applauded for having failed at. Yeah. And I think that failure is very much self-generated. Mm-hmm. It's something that you decide, for the most part, to stop doing because you haven't reached the level of success that you needed or wanted, whether it be funding, whether it be effort, whether it be ego. There are any number of things. But you basically decide. I've now decided to stop. I failed at getting into these schools. I am no longer applying to college. I failed at this love affair. I'm giving up on this person. I failed at losing weight. I'm going to eat whatever I want. <laughs> <laughs> right? I think that's the best. <laughs> <laughs> I know. 
the more <laughs> damaging experience, the more painful, I don't know if it's dam- more damaging, the more painful experience is rejection. Because in many ways, you don't have a choice when you're rejected. I've been rejected from this situation. I have been deemed unworthy. I have been deemed not good enough. And that is not necessarily in your control. That's the part that gives you the heartbreak. We can, I think, really rationalize away failure. Well, you know, I decided at that point I'd put enough money into that. Yeah. (laughs) I decided I was going to go a different direction. It's very much, I made the decision. The marketplace wasn't quite quite ready for us. Whatever it, whatever it is yeah. we want to tell yeah. ourselves. It doesn't, especially now, involve quite the same stigma or shame that rejection does. Very few people talk open-heartedly about being dumped. <laughs> Very few people talk open-heartedly about the number of schools that outright objected, uh, rejected them yeah. mm-hmm. or objected to them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Freudian slip, right? Yeah. <laughs> You hear the the occasional story of people that wallpaper their bathrooms with their rejection letters. By then, they're usually successful. So I think that rejection has a lot of shame associated with it. And therefore, it's the more damaging emotion. And so I've been thinking a lot about that lately. And how how do you overcome that? Because I haven't really failed as much as I've been rejected. And I've been rejected over and over and over and over again. So many times... I can't even list them all. By jobs, by schools, by people, you have no idea. And what does it take to sort of persevere? Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. That's the hard thing. And and I still grapple with that. I'm 54 years old and I still grapple with it. I mean, do you think that has given you a thicker skin or, I mean, does it get the only, easier? The, the only thing you realize is that it doesn't kill you. Yeah. yeah. Uh, there's, a book in, there's a book that just came out by Myra Kellman called Beloved Dog. And she writes in the book about how when her husband Tibor died, she thought the world would end. Mm -hmm. And it didn't. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Myra. (laughs) Myra. Yes. Let's have a moment just to acknowledge and bow down to the great Myra Kelman. No one in the world like her. I read that and my world stopped for a second because I was experiencing tremendous grief at that point. And it's true. We had a course with her, fortunately, in grad school, and it, I would call it my therapy. Yeah. Because we'd go to her beautiful apartment. She had these bowl of clementines. I'm not even kidding. Every time I see a clementine, I think of her. And it's just, <laughs> like, just sitting in her presence and just hearing her and just, like, talking about... It was just, like, it was like a therapy session. Yes. It was, it was yes. incredible. So, with this said, I'm going to read a quote that you were interviewed in, The Great Discontent, which I think kind of ties into this. Uh-huh. So you see, my first 10 years after college were experiments, injection, and despair. (laughs) I knew that I wanted to do something special, but frankly, I didn't have the guts to do anything special. When I graduated, I didn't feel confident enough, optimistic enough, or hopeful enough to believe that I could get what I really wanted. I wasn't living what I considered to be my highest self. In fact, I was probably living my most fearful self. So with that said... And sort of like where you are now, do you feel like you had to go through those sort of, I guess, quote unquote, 
I don't want to call them failures since we just had the whole conversation about that, but these sort of... The rejections. Yeah, the yeah, rejections. These sure. these parts in your life where you're obviously not feeling 100% like, yes, I can do it. I'm amazing. You know, no, I like, never think that. <laughs> yeah, like how... Because, I mean, you're incredibly successful now. I mean, I'm, maybe you were even successful then and you just... You know, I mean, how do you think that you just kept going and persevering and do you think these experiences led you to who you are today? I absolutely think that the experiences led me to who I am today, but I also think that I tell myself that to make sense of the past. It would be pretty disappointing if they didn't. What <laughs> 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 would be the purpose? But yeah. <laughs> I've had a year where I underwent a tremendous amount of grief. My dad died and I moved and there are just so many things that I could list. And, and there were moments where I really felt like I couldn't bear the grief. And to comfort myself, I think I said to myself over and over, well, this is a, a rebuilding year. This is a year where everything is changing. And I'll look back on this year as a watershed year in the same way I can look back at 2003 and say, everything changed in 2003 and everything changed in 1994. And I can look back on those years and say, oh my God, I went through it. The last time I went through this much grief was then, and look what happened after that. And that's just optimism, really. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, if I, if I think back to those days that I'm describing in the Great Discontent episode or issue, I'd like to look back and be able to say, you know, what Dan Savage said, say to myself, it, it'll get better. It gets yeah. better. It gets, it gets better. better. I know. It gets better, Debbie. <laughs> I, need, like, a record, I need a recording of him just like saying, it gets <laughs> yeah. better. What I can say wholeheartedly, despite the tremendous sadness that I've experienced in every decade, that every decade has gotten better. Every decade. And Paula Scher has said the same thing. That Because we talk, she's now in her 60s, I'm in my 50s, and she said that when she was in her 50s, it was a great, great decade. And, and she's going through another resurgence and another sort of extraordinary streak of incredible work and so that also gives me a sense of okay well 60s is going to be good too um i'm not halfway through my 50s yet so i am telling myself that well i'll look back on this year as one of those years that changed everything and that that was what needed to happen now whether or not that's true from a what would an astrophysicist say? <laughs> what would a cosmologist say? You know, that's a load of crap we tell ourselves to make sense of the world. Uh, I'll still go with a load of crap. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. I'm on that. I'm on that spaceship. <laughs> so, what do you do to rejuvenate? Like sleep? Really? Yeah, I'm a big sleeper. I love to luxuriate in bed. Um, <laughs> this morning. I ate breakfast in bed, and I like to just lounge. I love to putter, and I recharge by spending time by myself, reading, watching Lord Order, SVU, Olivia Benson. Save Lord and Olivia, right? The original Just Olivia. Just Olivia. Just Olivia. And I spend a lot of time hanging out with my dogs and doing art and thinking and puttering. That's how I recharge. But I, I am a big sleeper. I like to get a lot of sleep. Me too. Well, sleep, is when, <laughs> sleep is when we regenerate our brains. Yeah. We, our, our brain cells regenerate. Our bodies are regenerating. And a lot of people ask me if I sleep as if 
Yeah. The ability to get things done means that you you're sacrificing sleep. sleep. And I say, no, not at all. I think it's the opposite. I think I have enough energy mm-hmm. to do things, enough clarity to complete things because I get enough sleep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And to be efficient yeah. when you're doing them. Yeah. I mean, speaking of your projects, are you working on any new or current projects? I just, just, just finished doing the design of the poster for National Poetry Month 2016, which is in April. I was going to ask, what is it? It's in April. And I've been aware of this poster for at least 10 years. It's been, the posters come out, I think, for at least 20 or maybe 30 years. It was on my bucket list of things that I wanted to do some point in my life. And Chip Kid wrote me this year and said, Honey, would you do me a favor? Would you be interested in doing this? Please, please. And I wrote back, You just made my life. (laughs) You don't even have to say please. You're like, Yes! You just made my life. So I put my heart and soul into it. I worked on it for about a month. I just submitted it on Friday. Oh, amazing. Very, very, very excited about it. I think it's the best that I could have done, so I feel good about that. So now I'm starting to work on a limited edition set of notebooks for Baron Fig. I don't know if you're aware of Baron Fig. They're um, a better moleskin. Ah. It was um, a gentleman named Joey Cafone who also graduated from SVA. One of the new visual artists at Print Magazine this past year did a Kickstarter a couple of years ago, creating this new notebook that when you open it, it actually lays flat. Oh, brilliant. Yeah. So every page lays flat. Yeah. It doesn't fly up. And so it's remarkable Mm -hmm. for doing artwork because Mm -hmm. the page doesn't continue, especially if you're a lefty like I am, it's not slapping into your arm. So I'm a big fan of the notebooks, and he reached out and asked me if I'd be interested in doing a limited edition, and so I'm working on that. It's called Askew, and I'll leave it at that, Um, but I'm very, very happy to be doing that, and I'm also working on a new book, which will be out in April, and the book is called Why You, and it's very much about sort of flying in the face of rejection and creating a living doing what you love. So did you ever think you'd be writing about such personal things? I feel like you're very, you're very creative, right? You have all these creative journeys you have, but you're also giving so much amazing advice to people through your personal stories. Mm -hmm. It's very interesting because I would say that I'm a very, very private person until I'm ready to share. Mm -hmm. And then when, when I'm ready to share, there's very little I won't reveal It's the same way I approach change. I'm terrified of change. I'm terrified of things being different. But once I make up my mind that I have the courage to do it, I never look back. And then I, when I do, I wonder what the hell was I worried about? Yeah. Why was I so scared? Why did it take me 20 years to do that? Yeah. Why did it take me 50 years to do that? Yeah. And then it's almost as if that fear never existed. Yeah. It just goes right off your shoulder. But it's profound yeah. while I'm in it. Yeah. I completely, I can completely relate. And it holds me back from everything. Is it the thought process that you need to I don't know. I, recently, I mean, I'm the same way too. Yeah, so I, I recently just... made a huge, huge change professionally in my work life. And I talked to my therapist about it. And I'm like, I think I'm going to, I think I'm going to commit to doing this and, and, and alert my partners. And I said, do you think I'm making a rash decision? She said, only if you define rash as eight years. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> she said it with all the sincerity in the world. World, yeah. And you're just like, wow. Like a light bulb goes off, right? <laughs> yeah. It's incredible. I guess when you know when you're in something, you're also in it. Like you're in your own head, yeah. you know. And it's like everyone else could be telling you, telling you something else, and you're yeah. just like, you're just in it, you know. I I, I completely. But we create these realities for ourselves where this thing becomes so important, and if this doesn't happen, you will never, ever, oh. ever get another thing in your life, and you'll yeah. never get another job, and you're entirely unemployable, and yeah. no one is ever going to love you because you're totally unlovable. <laughs> and then it's like, oh my God, what was I know. thinking? Like, what yeah. path did I just go down? <laughs> and then something else happens, and you're so grateful, and then it re- you realize, wait a second, this is awesome. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's life for you, right? <laughs> So do you have a favorite thing that you work on? Because you're doing so many things. You're writing, you're creating, you're teaching. Making, making. When I'm in the process of making, when I'm in the process of making a class, when I'm in the process, and when when I'm in the process of of teaching, of making a class happen, when I'm in the process of making a podcast, the actual interview with the person is a remarkable gift for me. When I'm drawing, when I'm writing, I love the act of making. So even for your students, like... Are you very open with them like this? Like, are you very, or is it... Yeah. I mean, I I think that the best way to teach them is through many of my own personal experiences, because then they know I'm not full of shit. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, I can say don't compromise, and anybody can say don't compromise, and don't settle, and don't do whatever, but unless you can say, if you compromise in the way that I did, you will experience this this and this in the same way that I did or very likely in the same way or Mm -hmm. I'll let you know right now if you're afraid of doing this because it's too hard well working at McDonald's is also hard working at Starbucks is hard so if you're going to not try to do something because you think it's too hard then you may want you might want to rethink your definition of hard what I think people define as hard is hard to get what is the worst thing that could happen? One of my students actually said it best. When I always I asked my students, what's the worst thing that could happen to you if you try to get something that you want and you're unsuccessful at it? And one of my students brilliantly said, I think I might die of heartbreak. <sighs> oh my God, that's so terrible. But how many people do you know have actually died, died of heartbreak? Not many, yeah. but just, so what just happens to feel is that way. <laughs> we metabolize things really quickly. Mm-hmm. We metabolize feeling satiated. We metabolize love. We metabolize fear. We metabolize pain, sadness. We are metabolizing machines. We're hot. We want to be cooler. We get we cool ourselves off. We're cold. We put on a sweater. Mm-hmm. We eat so much that we never think we can eat again at Thanksgiving, and four hours later, we're going to eat the Like, what's the last situation? Like, you know, we fall in madly in love, and we're madly in love wherever long we're madly in love, and then suddenly we're not madly in love anymore. Or maybe not so suddenly. It is possible to recover from heartbreak. It is possible. It is possible. <laughs> Might take a while, but it is possible. <laughs> and then we find something else to do. Exactly. Or to love. Mm-hmm. Or to be. Even Pete Best, who was fired from the Beatles, who tried to commit suicide after he was fired from the Beatles, as the Beatles were becoming the Beatles, found happiness in his life. Mm-hmm. It is possible. So, if you don't go after what you want, 
you might die of regret. Mm-hmm. Very true. But I'd rather have the pain of heartbreak than the pain of regret. Any sure. day of the week. Yeah, because you know you put you know you put your heart in it. Right. Yeah. What other advice would you give to other designers just starting out in the field? Expect anything worthwhile to take a long time. (laughs) We are living in what is now, I refer to as a 140 character culture. Everybody expects everything to happen instantly. If you're not famous by the time you're 30 or has been. You know what? If you're not famous by the time you're 30 but you're doing what you love, thank your lucky stars that you don't have to sustain that fame from 30 to 70. Exactly. Or 80. Yeah. Right? Mm -hmm. The longer something takes, likely the longer it will last. And if you're chasing fame, you're not chasing what's really meaningful. Mm-hmm. You should be chasing, if you can, doing something that really brings you joy, mm-hmm. not fame. Mm-hmm. Yeah, remember, I, there was a podcast that you were on, and you went to someone's school to volunteer for the day. Younger <gasps> kids. Yes. Oh, I was not a volunteer for a day. I was but, a fortune teller at a Halloween <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I was in this horrendous orange moo-moo. Were you? Were you? I was <laughs> My friend Susan and Marcus, their Wait, children. Are there photos of this? There are, actually. <laughs> they, their children were in St. Luke's, and I was asked to participate. This is many years ago. They're both in college now. I was asked to participate. I was a volunteer fortune Portion teller. <laughs> That's amazing. And the kids, and I had a, a crystal ball in front of me, and I said, so... What do you want to see in your future? What do you want to be? And the answers were not baseball player, teacher, doctor. It was famous. Famous. Mm. famous. I want to be famous. What does that even mean? I don't know. <laughs> this okay. was back in the days of Paris Hilton, so I guess uh, everybody was looking for notoriety. Yeah. Yeah. That was so interesting. I was like, wow. It's like people don't even... It's ever, even like, you know, today, the Kardashians, this, that. It's like there's... No, like, kind of passion anymore. It's just like, oh, I want to be famous. I want to be, like, these YouTube stars or these, yeah. you know. It's, in, it's interesting sort of where the future is headed. I have another quote that I want to uh, bring up from The Great Discontent that I thought was interesting. I know. It's hard not to bring up the quotes. I use quotes from them all the time. <laughs> They're so good! In my interviews <laughs> on Design Matters. It is a remarkable endeavor that Ryan and Tina Esmaker are doing. They're Absolutely. extraordinary. They're extraordinary. I remember when it was had just started and you know it just had the platform of the website and now it's just like amazing they have these beautiful printed um stunning uh, like magazines mm-hmm. books they're more like a nice book texture paper you know they're, they they're lovely artists. they smell beautiful and they, yes they're and they're both very incredible i actually met them last year at brooklyn beta so it's like great to actually talk to them so you say i don't think you can achieve anything remarkable without some risk anytime you try something that doesn't have certainty associated with it you're risking something but what other way is there to live? I want to talk a little bit more about this. And what do you think is one of the biggest risks that you've taken? Um, I think coming out was a big risk. But most people don't think that. Oh, I completely think that that's a risk. When I had first come out at a workplace... With my friends and family was one thing. That was a big risk in itself because I didn't know how they were going to react to it. Yeah. And I think because I'm so much older than you, there's a lot of baggage that anybody that grew up in the 70s and 80s carries with them in witnessing homophobia, 
in witnessing discrimination, in seeing how people were shamed or killed. And I actually feel a little ashamed that it took me so long and I ended up waiting. And I don't know that I I consciously did this. I don't think I consciously waited for a time when it was less culturally judged. But I do feel some shame in having waited for an easier, in quotes, time. Mm -hmm. But that didn't make it easier for me personally. Mm -hmm. I think that... I was so afraid of being judged. But again, similar to what I said before, once I do something, then Mm -hmm. I look back and I think, what was I thinking? Mm -hmm. How stupid, how homophobic of my own self. Yeah. And that was revelatory. Um, (laughs) I had some experiences where, so my cousin Eileen is really my best friend. And she was the first person I came out to. And she was extraordinary. When I came out to her daughter, who I adore, her daughter Maya, lives in California. You know, most people who've known me my whole life had big responses. Eileen having a very big one because she was the first person and knew my journey. With Maya, she's, I came out to her, I was, she was like 19 or something. And she was like, cool. I knew it. I knew you were going to say that. I knew it the minute you and said it. I was like, what do you mean? She's like, whatever. And she's like, Tibby, I live in California. Everybody's gay. Yeah. <laughs> and I was so I was so downtrodden. I wanted, like, the big hug. And yeah, yeah. Congratulations. Yeah. My best, best, very, very, very best response was from my brother. So my brother is two and a half years younger than me. He has two kids. He's a doctor. He's a tad conservative. Um, I was still very new at the coming out thing because... Yeah. It was my brother, so he was right in the top of the of list, course, right? Yeah. And I was really worried that he would think I would be a bad influence on his kids. Yeah. And I don't know, it was crazy. And so I had started seeing somebody new, and I wanted to share that with him. He had been very, very helpful when I had gone through the previous breakup that I'd had. And so I gave myself a deadline. I'm like, by this day, I'm telling Larry. This is when I'm telling Larry. This is when it's going to happen. I'm telling Larry and Jane. So I had decided it would be that day. They live on Long Island. I'd gone out to visit them. Oh, God. The kids after dinner. So I spent the whole day So it was after dinner, the kids had TV time after dinner, so they were watching Mickey Mouse and Minnie Mouse. Jane was washing the dishes, my brother was doing the recycling, I was clearing the table. And there I am with two plates. I'm like, Jane, Larry, I have something I want to tell you. Jane, like with the rubber gloves, stops mid-wash. My brother is holding two <laughs> bottles to be recycled. Like, freeze frame. Moment in time. Uh, they look at me in terror. They think I'm going to tell them I have cancer. Yeah. yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah, I know. I know. Yeah. Right? <laughs> so I start out by saying, I'm seeing someone new. And then, rush of relief. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> yeah, then Jane turns the water off. Puts the recycling down, and they're like, "Great, tell us everything." And I'm like, "And it's a woman, my brother." Without missing a beat, looks at Jane and says, "I told you." Wow, I, so funny. 
I get that all the time too. I knew it. Like how my brother, my brother. So you know, it's happened since that time, really. And but it, I mean, it's been a, a long journey of developing our relationships with both Eileen and Larry. But they've since. I've become even closer with them, and I would say that my brother and my cousin are my best friends. Yeah, isn't that's that awesome. amazing? Yeah. No, it's funny how it is. Like, They're my I, best friends. I think that, well, at least for me, like a part of it is I feared it so much, right? And I didn't it's want to tell anyone. The and then thing. it's like, yeah. yeah, exactly. I'm in my head. Yeah, Not but I still, I still, and I think it's, I think it's, I, I battle my own homophobia. Although I have the opposite response with with other people, if somebody I know is gay, mm-hmm. I like them more. Yeah, but for myself, I judge myself. Yeah, and, and that comes from decades of socialization and, and cultural discrimination, and my own sense of shame, of which I have for a lot of different things, not just yeah. anything to do with who I'm interested in romantically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, plus I think too, it's like you're so close to these people, you you care about how they react, right? And like, I, I care a lot how people. I care a lot react. about how people react about everything. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> did, did the cashier at the Walgreens think I was mean? <laughs> she didn't think I was being mean when I was, you know, whatever, you know? Yeah. Yeah, but like I was saying before uh, we started recording, I do think, though, it's great, you know, that you are out and that in the design community, especially, there are not many women that are open about these things and you're someone to look up to. So I think it's really great. I mean, I don't know that people aren't necessarily open. I just don't know that there are many of us. That's true, too. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But there are more and more. So one of the other questions that I have, what for you has been one of your favorite projects that you've worked on to mm, date that's an easy easy answer <laughs> and that's the work that i've done with the joyful heart foundation with uh no more so my work with no more we band together this group of high-powered female executives to put together a platform that we hoped could turn into a movement to help eradicate sexual assault domestic violence and child abuse all very, very important topics to me and to the world. And so I was tasked with working on the brand, developing the identity, the positioning, the tagline, the name, everything. And so I worked with a woman named Christine Mao, who is a global design director at Kimberly Clark and a number of other extraordinary women, Miley Zambuto, the CEO of... Joyful Heart Foundation, Jane Randall, an extraordinary group of women, and we created this platform. And No More was developed. And it took off. So I worked on developing the mark, the blue vanishing point. And then Miley Zambuto and Mariska Hargitay, and Mariska Hargitay is Olivia Benson. Yes, like Olivia! Sorry, I'm really excited. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, they asked me if I'd be interested in helping Joyful Heart Foundation. So I've been working very closely with them, meeting Mariska. Wait a was, yeah, I know, I know. Wait a minute. Yeah. So, you, <laughs> so you know all of the events in real life? Well, yes. Or of her. No, I do, I do. I, and I, I know her husband, who is one of the most remarkable people on the planet. Um, and so I've been working really, really closely with them, uh, with Peter Herman and Miley and Mariska and the board of the Joyful Heart Foundation who are fully committed to transforming the way society responds to these issues. It's amazing. And so, yeah, that is the most, it makes my entire life make sense. This work makes my entire life make sense. And so it is 
among the most important things that I do and by far my most favorite project. So my other question, aside from working with, you know, your or projects or people that you're working with, um, to your favorite thus far, or I guess who is the dream person that you would want to interview for Design Matters? Mm-hmm. Who is the dream person I want to interview for Design Matters? I have a lot of dreams. <laughs> <laughs> I'd love to interview Hillary Clinton. I'd love to interview Joan Didion. I'd love to interview Edie Windsor. I would have loved to have interviewed Susan Sontag. That's good. Yeah. <laughs> you gave I mean, me plenty of money. On and on yeah. and on. I mean, you've had some I have an incredible, incredible. Yeah. season coming up. So, Alison Bechtel, who wrote Fun Home and Dykes to Watch Out yeah. For, yes. we're interviewing her. Great. Um, Fun Home is amazing. Yeah. I had front row seats. I wept like a baby. Really? Bring the tissue. Bring the tissues. I'm interviewing Roz Chast. So I'm very, very excited about that. I have a great, great season for 2016 planned. I can't wait. But that's the great thing about doing this podcast. If somebody is creative and they're willing, I'll talk to anybody mm-hmm. and everybody. Which is great. And some of these people obviously are super known. But there's some people that maybe I didn't know about or, you know, mm-hmm. and it's exciting to just be like, oh, wow, like I'm discovering something new. Yes. Right. Yes. And I think that's like one of the most exciting things, yes. especially about your podcast. Uh, with painting your own legacy, what would it look like and how would you be remembered? I feel like you're doing mm-hmm. everything so amazing. But is there any one area you want to like tap into? Well, I feel like I'm just getting started. Yeah. And I'm really just beginning to understand the value of what I know about branding and how that knowledge could actually make the world a lot better place Mm -hmm. to be in. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of the focus of my branding work moving forward will be more in the lines of doing things like working with No More, Mm -hmm. working with Joyful Heart. I was just approached by a consortium of organizations that are interested in eradicating sexual violence in one generation. And I've agreed to work with them on some branding. I actually, using the word agreed doesn't even sound remotely. Um, I was honored and felt compelled mm-hmm. to, to say, yes, of course, I have to do this work. Um, so I feel like that work is just at the very beginning. I'm just at the very beginning of the kind of impact that I want to have doing that kind of work. I'd like to get more involved in helping politicians that I really believe in understand how to create their own branding that is more accurate in terms of what they stand for and how to communicate. Um, so that's something I'd, I'd like to, to do more of. And I'd like to continue with my teaching, with writing, with making art, and making podcasts. And sleeping in between. It's <laughs> and sleeping well and eating well and loving as much as I possibly can. And of course, you know, spending time with my dogs who have to live forever. They're yes. adorable. Yeah. <laughs> the snoring for anybody that might hear it in the background is Scruffy, who's somewhat um, noisy in his nocturnal habits. 
taking a sweet little nap. They Ooh. both are. <laughs> With that said, I think that's it, at least for me. Um, thank you so much for coming on. Um, it was great thank hearing. Thank you for giving us yes. some words of wisdom. I'm like yeah. so inspired right now. Thank you too. Um, so for people that want to find you um, on the internet, I don't know if you want to give your website, Twitter, sure. anything like um, that. Well, you can find me at DebbieMillman.com. You can also listen to all my podcasts on either designobserver.com or iTunes or SoundCloud. And Twitter is at Debbie Millman. Great. Thank you guys again for listening. If you guys um, really like the show, if you have any questions, comments, concerns, shoot us an email, hello at nakedinsideout.com. Also, feel free to give us a rating in iTunes. We're always grateful for those. Until next time, guys. Thanks Thanks so so much. much. (laughs)